Again, Acts 19, 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to see you all. It has been a while uh, since I've had the privilege to preach, and especially preach actually in front of people rather than in front of a, uh, a camera. The last time I did a sermon, the last few times when I was recording them online, I would usually get my wife to sit behind where the phone was just so I kind of was like, okay, I can respond to someone who's doing laundry and not looking at me. But, you know, kind of get the feel that someone's there maybe paying attention. Uh, I am really excited uh, to be able to, to preach this morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Joel. I am one of the pastors at Holy Trinity. Um, but I am someone who has been pastored a lot this past year. Not that I've been pastoring, actually, but that John and Sully have done so much. And I do want to say, it's been so long since I've cried in front of people, guys. It's just, it's just tough. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting when I, when I took a step back from, from full-time ministry that it probably was like me avoiding the most difficult season I could imagine. Um, not just with COVID, but with all the events that have happened this past year, with all the, the revelation of just how to think about what's going on in our country. Um, and it's weird as a pastor to say, like, haven't we done a good job? But I do want to say, I feel like I've been cared for so well by Sully and John. And so as I step up into the pulpit, I want to kind of continue uh, what they have been doing. So thank God, for, thank God for them. You may be a little bit confused as to why we read the text that we read, because last week we also did 19, 1 through 7. That was included last week. Uh, this morning, the reason why we are doing this is there are occasionally our texts that we find that either the content is so significant, that it, that it records this historical event that's so important for the flow of all of history, of what God does, or what it deals with is so important or so confusing that taking a couple weeks to really walk through it is important. And so that's what's going to happen here. I'm, I'm excited to dive into this and talk about what is going on at this bizarre text where these people have not heard of the Holy Spirit, they've only heard of John's baptism, and why does Luke choose to record this here? But before I, before I start talking about it, I'm going to pray, 
and then we can dive in, as I always say. So let's pray first. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of it, and we thank you, Lord, that it is the instrument of your spirit to actually bring your people together. Lord, that it's not just there for us to read it individually, but to actually come together and to embody its story, to see what you have done in the past so that we might know what you might do in the future. And I pray this morning, God, that you would be gracious with all of us in using your word and using me, the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, to proclaim you so that we might know you. I pray, Lord, that you would speak right now, that this would not be me, it wouldn't be about me. It'd be about your son, it'd be about your work, that you might be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like, I'm sure, many of you, the past year has been spent uh, watching probably way too many shows and movies. It's just kind of the thing that you often, at the end of the day, I'm like, well, that was a stressful day, again. Let's kind of throw on something. In fact, in a moment of remarkable foolishness, when my family was out of town, they were in Texas visiting my in-laws who are here today. Uh, When they were there, I decided a good idea would be to get HBO Max solely so that I could watch the Snyder Cut of Justice League, which was way worse than I thought it was going to be, but I still watched all four hours of it. That was a bit of a regrettable thing. However, I was excited when I got it to find out that it, that Band of Brothers was included on HBO Max. So I really love that miniseries. My grandfather is a, was a D-Day veteran, um, and I love talking to him about the war. And so whenever there's a really good movie on World War II, a really good miniseries, I love going back to it over and over again. One of my favorite episodes that I actually watched a couple days ago focuses on Sergeant Carl Lipton. Easy Company, at this moment, is involved in the Battle of the Bulge, but they are struggling, which kind of makes sense with it, and especially from Lipton's perspective. Not necessarily because of the cold or the Germans, though that is certainly true, but because of lack of leadership. Lieutenant Dyke, who is their CO, the company's CO, is what Lipton calls an empty uniform. He's not actually leading the people, and this is a problem because the company needs someone to lead. They need someone to actually hold them together to take them forward. But at the end of the episode, Lipton is having a conversation with Spears, who's now taken over the company, and Spears says to him, listen, I actually heard that all along there has been a leader. There has been someone to hold the men together, to care for them, to lead them. And then he says to Lipton, you have no idea who I'm talking about, do you? Lipton says, no. Well, it was you, Spears tells him. You were that leader. There actually was a solution. There was an answer to the problem all along, but Lipton couldn't see it because he was looking in the wrong direction. He was expecting it to come from out there when really he was the one who actually was doing it. Have you ever felt that way? Not necessarily about yourself as if you are the answer to problems, but that you were looking for an answer to your problems, longing for something to be fulfilled, And you kept on expecting it to take a certain form. But you ended up realizing that you were looking for it in the wrong places. And so you couldn't actually see it. See what was there all along. Because you were facing the wrong way. I'm sure we all have. In fact, I sometimes feel like that's what's going on when I watch Netflix at night. It's like I expect this will help me feel rested. And at the end, I'm like, that was a waste of time. I still feel stressed. 
I'm looking for it in the wrong places. What if that was true about the greatest problems of our lives? What if the solution to your deepest longings, to the world's deepest desires, was something that was actually already here? What if the answer had already come, but we couldn't see it? because we were looking the wrong way, or we were expecting it to take a certain form that actually it hadn't. That's what I want to talk to you about today when looking at this text, which may sound surprising, but essentially I want to show you from this text that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, okay, so whenever I refer to Luke, I'm talking about the author of this, that he tells this story to push us to see that the gospel The work of Jesus Christ is the salvation, is the work of God in history to save the world. The greatest work he's ever done, and it's already happened. That God's answer has already come. That we don't need to wait anymore. You don't need to keep looking. But we often miss it because we're looking the wrong way. We're expecting something different. That's what I'm going to show you as we look at this text. So begin with me looking at verse 1. So Acts 19 Verse 1, it says this. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Okay, so what we find here is that the Apostle Paul, the one we've been tracking with uh, essentially since chapter 9 of the book of Acts, who's been going from city to city, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, that he now comes to Ephesus. And this is basically the last major city before he turns around and starts heading back to Jerusalem. So there's almost like a bit of a hinge that happens here where Paul kind of feels like he's accomplished what he's sent to do and now he starts turning and saying, I'm going to need to go back to where this whole thing started. So he now comes to Ephesus after a guy named Apollos has left and gone to Corinth. Okay? But when Paul arrives, he finds some disciples. He doesn't need to plant the church. They seem to already be there. Whoever looked quickly with me at verse 2. He says this, And he, meaning Paul, said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Okay, now on reading this, as I kind of said earlier, it's a bit bizarre. And it's likely, this is just kind of important to know, it's likely that Luke is not recording every single thing that happened in this conversation. I don't think Paul, most places he showed up, was like, now I have one question. Do you have the Holy Spirit? He probably had more dialogue kind of going on there, which doesn't mean that Luke is lying or that he made a mistake or something like that. It just means when he's writing this, he's condensing things. Probably much to your chagrin, the sermons were not as short as he recorded them in the book of Acts. I'm sure you want my sermon to be that short. I would have been done five minutes ago. But he's actually, he's condensing them down so that he can pack all into this telling. There's almost no way that that's everything that was there. But what that means, that's important to know, what that means is that for us to understand it, we need to kind of get the context. What are these words referring to? What's behind them? We need to do some digging and some thinking when looking at this. And the first thing I think we should know is that Luke has prepared us for these disciples making this mistake. Okay, Because of the way he first introduces us to Apollos, who's now in Corinth. So this Apollos, John talked about this last week, Apollos is first introduced to us in the text right before this. Okay, and he's explained as being this remarkable preacher from Alexandria who'd been preaching in Ephesus. That's where he was. However, again, as John discussed last week, his preaching had some holes in it. In fact, what it explicitly says, if you look back at chapter 18, verse 25, is that Apollos only knew about the baptism of John. 
Okay, so even though, as it says in the verse right before that, he spoke accurately about Jesus, he only knew about John's baptism. And so again, as we learned last week, Paul's friends, Priscilla and Aquila, when they heard Apollos preach, were like, okay, buddy, let me just explain things a little bit more clearly to you. However, apparently, Apollos didn't have time to relay that information to the disciples he had been caring for and preaching to before he left for Corinth. Because now Paul discovers that these disciples in Ephesus haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit and have only been baptized into John's baptism. Okay, so what's what's going on here? Why why does Luke record this story? Or ask differently, why are these events so important that Luke included them in the book of Acts? Why tell this story here, we're at this critical moment in Acts, when Paul comes to Ephesus, which as I said before, happens to be the last city before he turned, the last major city, before he seeks to go to Jerusalem. Well, I want to try to answer that question by looking at the details of this text and trying to understand the differences between John's baptism as compared to how it's described in verse 5, being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which clearly has some connections to the Holy Spirit. What does it even mean to only be baptized into John's baptism? Well, John's baptism that's mentioned here clearly refers to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. And he's probably more important than we often think about. Okay, so all four Gospels begin with John. And in Acts chapter 1, when they need to replace one of the apostles, one of the things they make sure that the the apostle actually will have known is John's baptism. They had to been with the disciples from John's baptism all the way until the ascension. So something about it is really significant for holding on to here. So John was a bit older than Jesus, And he was sent by God to prepare the way for him. Okay, that was his role. In fact, like all the gospel writers, Luke uses the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah 40 to explain who John was and explaining that John was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. That's who John was. He was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. John was sent to the people to point them to Jesus, to their king, to their savior. To point not to himself, but to Jesus. To prepare people for him. And he did this through preaching and baptizing. And in particular, his baptism, as Paul explains in verse 4 here, was a baptism of repentance. Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. In other words... John and his baptism was about calling people to get ready for the king. Get ready for the savior. Get ready. Christ is coming and saying you need to turn around if you're going to see him. You need to look in the opposite direction. You need to repent. Change your life. Change your expectations so that you might see the one who is coming. He's not going to come in the way you think. You better look a different way, which is really what repentance is about. It's about turning around. But again, this is what's really important for us to get here. It was in anticipation of this. It wasn't saying, hey, he's here, go do it. It's actually saying, no, he's coming. It was an anticipatory action then. His baptism was then a temporary baptism. Something you were to do was you looked forward to what was coming. And it's in this way that you could say that John, even though he only appears in the New Testament books, that he really is the capstone of the Old Testament. He's kind of the end of it. What I mean by this is that the Old Testament and the New Testament put together tell one story. Okay? It's the true story of the world, the story of God's gracious work to restore the world to what it was meant to be, to restore the world to recognize God's reign, to bring his kingdom of heaven to bear on earth. Which is why we always pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the story the scriptures tell. 
And this story climaxes then in Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. With them, God's reign has come. Which means that the Old Testament scriptures and the story it tells is all preparing for and pointing forward to Jesus. And John was the end of that preparation. That This is why in Luke chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus explicitly says, the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, they were until John. Because he was the end of the preparation. In fact, Jesus says earlier in Luke, this is such a weird uh, verse when you think about it, you're like, how does this make sense? But he says, among those born of women, John is the greatest, but the least in the kingdom of God is even greater than him. It's like, why? How, How can we be greater than John? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because Jesus is highlighting that John was the end of the preparation. Something else has come. Something else has broken into history. God's kingdom, as Jesus says over and over again, has come. God's reign has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. We're no longer waiting. Hope is no longer the future. It is here. It is present. It is among us. It has come through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And though this may seem confusing, this is why John always explained that Jesus, the one who would come after him, would baptize us with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is consistently linked with the coming of God's kingdom and salvation. That when God would graciously forgive us of our sins, when he would reconcile a people to himself, when his justice would be made known in the world, when a people would be set apart to do his work faithfully, he would empower them with the Spirit. This is why Peter, in Acts chapter 2, when he preaches the first time, he says, guys, we're not drunk Remember, God said in the last days, his spirit will be poured out. He's saying it actually has happened. The kingdom has arrived. The spirit would literally then give new life to those who are forgiven. And that's vital to get because, okay, think about it. God has always worked through his chosen people. So he could have just done everything himself, but instead he's always chosen to, to choose people and use them. So he created Adam and Eve. And called on them to reflect him in the world. He chose Noah and his family to be his new image bearers in the world. He chose Israel to be his people who be a light of God's glory to the nations. And yet time and time again, the chosen people failed. Adam and Eve rejected him. Noah's family continued to sin. And Israel sought to look like the nations around them. And if they failed, I mean, especially Adam and Eve. Like if Adam and Eve failed... We're hopeless. Like, this isn't good. I mean, they're just, they're just in the garden hanging out. God's walking around. And they're like, no, we don't want that guy. If they failed, what hope is there? But you see, God kept saying that one day a different chosen one would come. One day God would choose to send his own son, and through him, he would forgive us of our sins, forgive us of our failures, but not just forgive, but give his own spirit to enable those forgiven to live as we were always meant to live to truly image God, truly reflect him, truly be free from the horrors of this world. But okay, that hope, that salvation, that forgiveness was always associated in people's minds basically with the end of history, with the end of the world. It was associated with a kind of cataclysmic event when God would forgive and restore his people, but also completely judge and annihilate all his enemies. Yes, people read the scriptures and understood that there was a hope, but it was future, and that's what it remained, completely future. And you actually see this in the interaction that Jesus has with Martha in John 11. When Jesus speaks to Martha, who's mourning the death of her brother, Lazarus, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. 
And what, what does she say? Well, I know he'll rise on the resurrection on the last day. So she's in pain. She's in mourning. She's like, yes, I know one day, but it's all out there. But what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Meaning, Martha, that hope is not just out there. It's not a pipe dream. It's not just the future. It's standing right in front of you. The salvation that restores the world to what it was meant to be is standing right before you. It has come into the world through Jesus. It is me who will give the spirit of life. You don't need to wait. You don't need to look anymore. Hope has come. And this is the point that all the gospel writers stress over and over again. The end of history came in the middle of it. The future hope of the world has already come. God has brought forgiveness and judgment through judging his own son in our place. The salvation of all things has already begun then. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus and sending of the Spirit. And I think this is what Luke is doing in our text as well. Reminding us and emphasizing at this moment when he's been going from city to city to city, conquering it by the word of God. Saying that there is another king, Jesus. When he's at this pivotal moment, Luke is saying, this has happened because the kingdom is already here. His reign, his salvation, his spirit have already come. And that we need to believe that and stop looking for something else to bring us salvation. Based on all this, you got to think through what is actually the problem with these disciples not knowing about the Holy Spirit and only having been baptized in John's baptism? What does it even really mean? I mean, obviously it's a theological problem, but theological problems always give birth to things that you do in your life, to anxieties, to stress. And that's what would happen here, because if you only know about John's baptism, you're still waiting. You're still looking around and hoping for something else to come. Where's the salvation? Where's the one who is to come? It means that these disciples don't recognize that the hope of the world, the kingdom of God, the salvation, the new creation, has actually already arrived. They're looking for Superman. They're waiting for someone else. And so Paul explains things to them more fully, baptizes them in the name of, the, of, of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit comes upon them. The Spirit confirms what they have done through tongues and prophecy. As John mentioned last week, it's almost like a second Pentecost that happens here. Now, this doesn't always happen, okay? So in the book of Acts alone, we see people get baptized that don't speak in tongues, that don't prophesy. And yet, there are times when to confirm in the people his presence, he does this. But I want to go back to what we were just saying about them still waiting and the significance of this. Because, of course, there is a very real sense that we are people here still waiting for the kingdom of God to be unveiled, for the kingdom to be fully revealed. We may have the spirit of the new creation, but we're still waiting for the day when God would make all things new. Sin is still here. The world is still full of horror. I mean, we're living through a pandemic where over 3.8 million people have died due to COVID. That's 3.8 million families that, like Martha, are longing for a reversal, that long for hope, that long for resurrection. And that number doesn't include all the people who survived COVID, but continue to deal with extreme effects. We are living in a world that continues to enslave, 
according to the Global Slavery Index, at least as of 2018, there were over 40 million slaves worldwide, most of whom are women and children. We continue to hear of mass shootings and senseless killings. Just a couple weeks ago, actually, um, in my hometown of London, Ontario, Canada, a 20-year-old man intentionally mounted a curve and ran over a Muslim family, killed the grandparents, parents, and sister of a nine-year-old boy who just survived. We live in a world where countries like our own can't seem to truly reckon and repent with our history and the present realities of racism, sexism, and abuse. We live in a city that is completely divided, almost into different realms. We have some of the best schools in the country here and some of the worst, and they're like less than a mile away. We have some of the most beautiful and safe neighborhoods and some of the poorest and most violent. And individually, we continue to struggle with sin, with pain, with depression, with loneliness, with purposelessness. I mean, when writing this, I could think and picture so many of you in my mind who right now are struggling. We have people who have come from broken homes, and the pain and damage is still there. We have people who are dealing with terminal illness. We have those mourning the loss of loved ones or the anticipated loss of someone who's sick before them. We have people repenting and seeking to overcome the guilt of their own sin. We have brothers and sisters longing for marriage, couples longing for children, and so many just longing for some actual rest. Because we are people still longing for God's kingdom to be fully revealed. But if we are still waiting... Are we actually different than the disciples here that Paul is interacting with, who haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit? What's the difference? I guess the difference concerns whether or not we believe that the hope has already been secured, already been guaranteed through Jesus. The difference would be, do you know that what you ultimately need is already here, or are you still waiting for that to come? Do you know that the promise has already been purchased by Jesus and it's guaranteed that one day every tear will be wiped away? Or are you still looking for something else in your life for God to add to fulfill that for you? Here's, here's what I mean, and, I, and I, I get this is hard. But what I mean is that the message of the gospel is not just that through Jesus Christ you can be forgiven of your sins. It's certainly that, but it's not just that. But that through Christ... You can be assured that all the joy, all the satisfaction, all the love, the life, the pleasure, the justice that we long for in ourselves and in our lives has been secured. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that promise. The message of the gospel is that God's kingdom has come so that through Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, God has provided already everything that the world needs. Now, let me be clear, this does not in any way mean that because Jesus has done everything for us in our world, we don't need to do anything at all. That was a conclusion that many seem to draw when listening to Paul. They would ask, well, if Jesus has done everything, why work on ourselves? Why work on the world if Jesus has already accomplished everything? And Paul would say, you do it because through Jesus, you've been empowered with the Spirit to finally actually do it. In the power of the Spirit, you seek to be holy 
because Jesus has made you holy in him. You seek to love others because Jesus first loved you. You seek reconciliation with others because Jesus has reconciled you to the Father and to one another. You work for justice in the world because Jesus is the just king who reigns over all things. But we do this over and over again. We work for these things because we believe that God has already done it through Jesus. The salvation has already been accomplished. I guess there's... There's so much that this means. I mean, on the one hand, we need to see how encouraging and life-giving this is. Because it means that we don't need to be afraid of the future. Nor do we need to constantly be looking around for the perfect movement or program to save the world. G7 won't save the world. I mean, pray for the leaders, but don't put your hope in them. Police reform won't save our cities. Pray, think, and work to figure out what would be the best kind of police reform. But don't place your hope there. Being better educated about the history of this country won't save the U.S. because better schools, better hospitals, better neighborhoods, leaders, parenting, economics, business, and yes, guys, even better churches are not the hope of the world. Jesus is, and he's already won. He's already declared victory. He's already done it. But that means you also don't need to be afraid either. I tend to find that Christians are either far too optimistic about the power of various programs and movements or far too scared and pessimistic about their power to destroy everything. But as Leslie Newbegin says, and I knew you knew, I I was going to quote Leslie at some point, hey, Sully and John have done it, so I get to do it too. As Leslie Newbegin would often say, when people would come and visit him in India, he was a missionary there, he said he was asked the question all the time, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the church or of our world? He had an answer he gave every time. He'd say, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, so the question doesn't arise. Because his point is to say, you cannot be optimistic or pessimistic about something that's already happened, about an event. You either believe or you disbelieve. If someone asked me, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the birth of my children, I would be confused. I'd be like, do you mean their futures? No, no, their birth. One can't be optimistic or pessimistic about that because it is something that's already taken place. And that's the point. Guys, Christ has already come. He has already won. The gift of the Spirit is already a present reality. Everything we need has already been secured. But I should say that this is especially hard when realizing that it also applies very, very personally as well. Because it means that none of us should look at our lives thinking that if God just gave us something else, if he gave us the job we want, or helped us to succeed with accomplishing our dreams, if he would help restore this relationship or just get me through this season of life, if he'd help me forgive myself of the sin, if he gave us the recognition we deserve, the money or security we long for, the relationship we wish we had, or the children we so desperately want, If he would just heal our illnesses or the illnesses of a loved one, if he would do that, then I'd be fine. Because the message of the New Testament is that what we all need has already been given to us. Through Christ crucified and Christ risen again. Now that doesn't mean you can't long for those things and work for them. So many of those things that I listed are good to seek for. But it does mean that we can't hope in them can't think of that if we only had that, then everything would be fine. Because what we long for, 
what we need has already been secured through Jesus. The gift of the spirit of eternal life, the gift of the kingdom has already been purchased. What you need, what you need is Jesus. You see, guys, this is why I think it is likely that all of us in some way are similar to the disciples here in this text. Because to only know about John's baptism, to not know about the gift of the Holy Spirit is to live your life still waiting for God to do something for you. It's to live as if there's something more that God is supposed to offer us. You see, Christ has already come. So if you struggle, if you struggle to feel like you are worthwhile, if you struggle to feel that you are loved, that you belong, if you feel alone, if you long for companionship, and that is a feeling that singles and married can all have, please know, if that is you, please know, brother, sister, that Christ has died for you. Because that's how worthwhile you are. That's how loved you are. And through that work, you can know you belong. Because now through Christ dying, he has given you the Holy Spirit through which you can call God, Abba, Father, Dad. God's already brought us to himself in love. If you're feeling beaten down by your own failures that your sins of the past or the present are just too much to bear and you can't escape them, then please know God has already offered you forgiveness. He's already offered you new life. He has already offered you the power of the Holy Spirit through which you can live in that forgiveness. Are you waiting for something? Longing for something? A job, a child, a reconciled relationship? Are you mourning the loss of something? It could just be the loss of what you thought your life was going to be like. Are you mourning the loss of a loved one? Do you look around at people who seem to have what you want and get angry at God because it seems like he's held back from you? Please know that he hasn't. He's already given you his son, his spirit, his salvation, the hope of resurrection. He's already given you his life. And through that, he has promised that one day he will wipe every tear away do you feel hopeless looking out at the world and at the massive problems then know that hope has already come christ has already died he is risen he is king and his kingdom will have no end and one day that will be unveiled i don't always listen to so-called worship music i just end up being really unintentionally very critical of the lyrics, being like, hmm, that wasn't theologically accurate. But there is a song called Ready or Not that I heard uh, by Hillsong United that I heard a while ago that when I was listening to it, it really struck and convicted and encouraged me. So the song is basically a call to worship. Are you ready or not for what God is about to do? But as it builds, it gets this climactic moment where it starts listing off the reasons that we should worship God. Why are we here? Right now, why did you come this morning? And this is what they end up singing. You are here because he's already bought your freedom. He's already paid our debt. He's already done the miracle. He's already conquered death. He's our light and salvation. He's our rock solid hope. He's already done enough for us. He's already doing more. He's already seen the ending. He's already seen us through. He's already breaking out of us. He's already on the moon, which I get, that's a weird line. 
Like, I guess God's on the moon, but anyways. He's already won our battles. He's already paved the way. He's already gone ahead of us. And he is ready when we are. The question is, are we? Are we ready to move past John's baptism, past anticipation of what is to come, past waiting to believing that he's done it for us? He's accomplished the victory. Because listen, this is, this is hard, and I know it sounds foolish. I'm sure it sounds foolish to many of you. I even felt strange writing this because you look around and you're like, really? He's already won? I don't, I don't get it. This, this is why people had such a hard time with Paul in their day. Because, I mean, shouldn't it look differently? How is it possible that the hope of the universe came through a man being crucified? But this is why Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Because what Paul is saying is that the kingdom came not through these glorious displays of power, but through weakness. Not through strength, but through sacrifice. And that is the sign of the reign of God. That God has won. That his spirit has come. New creation comes through the death of our God on our behalf. And that's God's ways. That, that's God's way. But that message often won't be heard. Which is actually what, what happens next here. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these verses. But I just want to read verses 8 through 10. So look with me there. Because it's significant. It says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about, about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. See, God uses Paul to declare that his kingdom has come. His reign is present. It's here. The spirit's arrived. Salvation is available. And this message is able to go forth all through Asia. But many... Specifically, those part of the synagogue reject it. They speak evil of what Luke calls the way. And listen, that's, that's what will happen. It's because that's, this is a hard message to hear. Say, God's already done everything he needs to do for you. But this is why I think Luke uses this little phrase here, the way. So Luke is the only writer to refer to Christianity or the church as the way. But each time he does it, if you go through and see each time he does it, it's always in the context of rejection or persecution. And that's important, I think, because he seems to have chosen this phrasing to refer to the Isaiah passage I mentioned earlier that talks about John. Because who was John? He was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But how did he do this? By calling on us to repent, to literally turn around, go in a different direction, look a different way, turn around, and you will see the arrival of the way. And that's important for us to get. I think the problem we often have is that we're facing the wrong direction. I've looked at my life many times and wondered, God, where are you? Have I ruined my life because I didn't accomplish this? Do I not get to be what I always thought I would get to be? Where are you, God? Why haven't you provided for me? But then he'll turn me around and say, look at my son on the cross. That is what I've done for you. We're looking for God's kingdom often to be shown to us in a specific way. And we keep asking God, where are you? 
Why don't you love me? Why is the world falling apart? But we need in moments like this to turn around and look to the way of the Lord, which is his son crucified for you, his son risen for you, his son reigning for you, and the gift of the Spirit given to you. Hope has come. It's here. Maybe rest secure in that. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of your son. We thank you, Lord, that he loved us and gave himself up for us. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to look there and see that you have achieved the victory we all need. You've offered us forgiveness. You've offered us life. And one day this will be revealed. May we live out of that hope. May we seek to be holy because of that. May we seek to be loving because of that. May we seek justice because of that. But not because the hope is out there, but because we know it's already been secured in Jesus Christ. May we rest secure in what you have done. And I pray that my brothers and sisters here, Lord, may they know how much you love them. May they know the hope that you have given. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.